Section 100 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 131 London, February 11th, Old Style, 1751 My dear friend, When you go to the play, which I hope you do often, for it is a very instructive amusement, you must certainly have observed the very different effects which the several parts have upon you, according as they are well or ill-acted. The very best tragedy of Corneille's, if well spoken and acted, interests, engages, agitates, and affects your passions. Love, terror, and pity alternately possess you. But if ill spoken and acted, it would only excite your indignation or your laughter. Why? It is still Corneille's. It is the same sense, the same matter, whether well or ill acted. It is, then, merely the manner of speaking and acting that makes this great difference in the effects. Apply this to yourself, and conclude from it, that if you would either please in a private company, or persuade in a public assembly, air, looks, gestures, graces, enunciation, proper accents, just emphasis, and tuneful cadences, are full as necessary as the matter itself. Let awkward, ungraceful, inelegant, and dull fellows say what they will in behalf of their solid matter and strong reasonings, and let them despise all those graces and ornaments which engage the senses and captivate the heart. They will find, though they will possibly wonder why, that their rough, unpolished matter, and their unadorned, coarse, but strong arguments, will neither please nor persuade, but on the contrary, will tire out attention and excite disgust. We are so made, we love to be pleased better than to be informed. Information is, in a certain degree, mortifying, as it implies our previous ignorance, it must be sweetened to be palatable. To bring this directly to you, know that no man can make a figure in this country but by Parliament. Your fate depends upon your success there as a speaker, and take my word for it, that success turns much more upon manner than matter. Mr. Pitt and Mr. Murray, the Solicitor-General, uncle to Lord Stormont, are beyond comparison the best speakers. Why? Only because they are the best orators. They alone can inflame or quiet the house. They alone are so attended to, in that numerous and noisy assembly, that you might hear a pin fall while either of them is speaking. Is it that their matter is better, or their arguments stronger than other people's? Does the house expect extraordinary informations from them? Not in the least. But the house expects pleasure from them, and therefore attends, finds it, and therefore approves. Mr. Pitt, particularly, has very little parliamentary knowledge. His matter is generally flimsy, and his arguments often weak. But his eloquence is superior, his action graceful, his enunciation just and harmonious. His periods are well turned, and every word he makes use of is the very best, and the most expressive, that can be used in that place. This, and not his matter, made him pay minister, in spite of both king and ministers. From this draw the obvious conclusion. The same thing holds fullest true in conversation, where even trifles, elegantly expressed, well-looked, and accompanied with graceful action, will ever please, beyond all the homespun, unadorned sense in the world. Reflect on one side how you feel within yourself, while you are forced to suffer the tedious, muddy, and ill-turned narration of some awkward fellow, even though the fact may be interesting. And on the other hand, 
with what pleasure you attend to the relation of a much less interesting matter, when elegantly expressed, genteelly turned, and gracefully delivered. By attending carefully to all these agremens in your daily conversation, they will become habitual to you, before you come into Parliament, and you will have nothing then to do, but to raise them a little when you come there. I would wish you to be so attentive to this object, that I would not have you speak to your footman, but in the very best words that the subject admits of, be the language what it will. Think of your words, and of their arrangement, before you speak. Choose the most elegant, and place them in the best order. Consult your own ear, to avoid cacophony, and, what is very near as bad, monotony. Think also of your gestures and looks, when you are speaking even upon the most trifling subjects. The same things, differently expressed, looked and delivered, cease to be the same things. The most passionate lover in the world cannot make a stronger declaration of love than the bourgeois gentilhomme does in this happy form of words. Mourir d'amour me font belle marquise vos beaux I defy anybody to say more, and yet I would advise nobody to say that, and I would recommend to you rather to smother and conceal your passion entirely than to reveal it in these words. Seriously, this holds in everything, as well as in that ludicrous instance. The French, to do them justice, attend very minutely to the purity, the correctness, and the elegance of their style in conversation and in their letters. Bien nerreur is an object of their study, and though they sometimes carry it to affectation, they never sink into inelegance, which is much the worse extreme of the two. Observe them, and form your French style upon theirs for elegance in one language will reproduce itself in all. I knew a young man, who, being just elected a member of Parliament, was laughed at for being discovered, through the keyhole of his chamber door, speaking to himself in the glass, and forming his looks and gestures. I could not join in that laugh, but on the contrary, thought him much wiser than those who laughed at him, for he knew the importance of those little graces in a public assembly, and they did not. Your little person, which, I am told, by the way, is not ill-turned, whether in a laced coat or a blanket, is specifically the same. But yet, I believe, you choose to wear the former, and you are in the right, for the sake of pleasing more. The worst-bred man in Europe, if a lady let fall her fan, would certainly take it up and give it her. The best-bred man in Europe could do no more. The difference, however, would be considerable. The latter would please by doing it gracefully the former would be laughed at for doing it awkwardly. I repeat it, and repeat it again, and shall never cease repeating it to you. Air, manners, graces, style, elegance, and all those ornaments, must now be the only objects of your attention. It is now or never that you must acquire them. Postpone, therefore, all other considerations. Make them now your serious study. You have not one moment to lose." The solid and the ornamental united are undoubtedly best, but were I reduced to make an option, I should without hesitation choose the latter. I hope you assiduously frequent Marcel, the most celebrated dancing-master at Paris, and carry graces from him. Nobody had more to spare than he had formerly. Have you learned to carve? For it is ridiculous not to carve well. A man who tells you gravely that he cannot carve may as well tell you that he cannot blow his nose, it is both as necessary and as easy. Make my compliments to Lord Huntingdon, whom I love and honour extremely, as I dare say you do. 
I will write to him soon, though I believe he has hardly time to read a letter, and my letters to those I love are, as you know by experience, not very short ones. This is one proof of it, and this would have been longer if the paper had been so. Good night, then, my dear child. End of section 100. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.